Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll be in 7, but I'm going to show you one verse from chapter 2. And let's pray one more time. Father, as we get into the Word of God now, we want to get the Word of God deep into us. We, we don't want to be what James says, just merely hearers who delude themselves. Self-delusion is the worst kind of delusion. But we want to be those who do the Word, those who want to carry it out. We know we won't do that perfectly, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So tonight, Lord, we just lay this time at your feet. We pray that you would bless it. As you've already blessed the time of worship and prepared our hearts now, let us receive the implanted word that you want to go deep into our souls. We ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would be glorified tonight in your church and stir us to the response that you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our world talks a lot about leadership. I think we all know the difference between good leadership and bad leadership. We can talk about leadership in politics. We can talk about leadership in terms of coaching. We can talk about leadership in the family. And of course, we can always focus on leadership in the church. What makes a good leader? We could say a good leader is someone who leads people to achieve something Maybe a good leader is somebody who gets people to do things that they didn't think they could do, pushes them beyond their uh, limits or natural abilities. Uh, Sometimes we think of coaches in that way, a coach trying to get the best out of you, whether that is him pushing you hard or encouraging you or a combination of both. Good coaches, good leaders seem to be able to get the best out of people. There's been a big debate Uh, You've probably seen it with the whole uh, Benjamin Netanyahu speech before Congress. And there, you know, it became a debated thing. And, you know, Democrats and Republicans and people are not going to stay. And and who got whose approval? And ultimately, Benjamin Netanyahu came and he did address Congress. And I think some of you watched that speech. And he's a very articulate man. Prime Minister of Israel had a lot of important things to say. But when you look at uh, leadership, no matter what sphere of life it may be, for us as Christians, the best leaders are always leaders that lead us back to God. I don't care what we're talking about. If I'm coaching a sport, if I'm a leader in politics, if I'm, you know, leading my family or I have a company or a, a, a mentoring or discipleship relationship, My goal is always to lead somebody closer to the Lord. That's really how, as a Christian, you define good leadership, is is that person leading us closer to God? Uh, Somebody can be clever in many other ways, but the ultimate test of leadership is defined here. This is 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. It says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, 2.30, I indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. This is one of my life verses. 
I pointed it out to you uh, some weeks ago when we were in this chapter. Those who honor me, I will honor. Whatever your station of life may be in terms of how you make a living or whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you are to do all things to what? The glory of God. If you honor God, he will honor you. That's the biblical promise. As we've watched leadership unfold in the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen a leadership gap. We've seen a leadership crisis. In fact, Eli with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have made a mess of things. Eli didn't seem to be that bad of a guy, but he seemed to be a passive father. His sons were doing such uh, uh, abominable things in the temple area, they're really unspeakable. And he He said something, but he didn't really put his foot down. He didn't stop them. And the nation was a mess. And the nation, frankly, mirrored their leaders. And these two men were supposed to be the priests leading the people spiritually. And they were so debauched that, you know, um, these reports were coming to Eli, but uh, God finally said, enough is enough. And he judged them. And those two sons died. And it said, you know, earlier in our text that God's intention was to kill them because they continued to treat God as unholy. They continued to treat him and make a mockery of things that he calls sacred and God won't be mocked. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will what? He will also reap. And God dealt with those young men and he dealt with them severely and even... Eli then fell backwards and the ark was taken and Eli died and the nation was a mess. And the ark of the covenant was taken by the invaders, the Philistines. But then we all know what happened, right? Uh, God had his way. He went into, you know, the, the ark was taken into the temple of Dagon and there appears to be other gods there. But uh, Dagon ended up bowing before the ark. We all know the story. And finally, after making, you know, uh, putting things properly, I would say, with Dagon bowing before the ark, the false god before the true god, they finally want the ark out of there. And remember, the ark does the circuit through Philistine territory, and people are getting these tumors, and there seems to be a rat infestation or something like that, and they're trying to appease Yahweh, and finally the ark rolls up into uh, Israelite territory. But it ends really bad. Just when you thought everything was good and the ark's safely back, somebody decides to look into the ark, remember? And uh, we don't know exactly what they did, but it would appear that they, they tried to open the lid of the ark and look into it. And it was really bad. And many, many people died. And, and the nation was really reeling. And things were not going well. This is 1 Samuel 7 in verse 1. What does good leadership look like? We're going to ask that question tonight. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So they were trying to figure out what to do with the ark. If you go back in chapter 6 for a second, the men of Beth Shemesh, verse 20, said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Or 
in essence, where shall we send the ark? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of, last verse of chapter 6, 21, of Kerith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. So they were trying to find a place for the ark. They were trying, I think, basically to put it somewhere where there was going to be no more damage done. I mean, the question was asked, who is able to stand before the Lord? That question is actually asked in the book of Joel, and it's asked in Revelation. Who can stand before him? We found some encouragement even after that uh, hard scene that we saw with the Israelite people dying. Uh, He is able to keep you from stumbling. If you're in Christ, you will stand holy and blameless before this holy God. That's the only way you will stand, by the way, is if you're cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so they, they took the ark and they, they put it up on the, in this hill area. We don't know a whole lot about the people that it was entrusted to, but these, these names are familiar in terms of um, Israelite history. You have Abinadab and his son Eleazar, which uh, has a name... That means God is help or God is power, Eleazar. And these seem to be Levitical names as well, or those who are connected to the priesthood. There's no judgment given. Nothing seems to happen that's bad here. So it seems like it's the right people taking care of the ark. And if you track the years that pass, the ark appears to stay in this location for 100 years. It's not until David actually moves the ark to Jerusalem that it moves from this location. So just kind of an interesting fact that it stayed here all this time. The Israelite people have been asking the question, why have we been defeated before the Philistines? They've been asking questions, why is God not rescuing us? And it came about, look at verse 2. From the day that the ark remained at Kerith-Jerim, that the time was long. For it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Look at 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. NIV says, It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. If you look at a Bible study text note, you read commentaries, the commentators agree that It's 20 years not of lamenting after the Lord. It's after 20 years of time has passed that they decide to lament after the Lord. So what you basically have is half a generation. A 20-year window goes by where the ark seems to be safely tucked away. It is out of sight out of mind, maybe people concluded, you know what, it's not safe. We don't know how to deal with this God. What what should we do? We don't know. And so they put it away. They, They put it on the back burner. And some of you tonight, maybe that's what you've done with your faith. Maybe someone listening to my voice later on to this message, that's what you did. You tucked God in this safe corner because he was somewhat unpredictable to you because you didn't know quite how to figure out his ways because his ways are higher than our ways, right? He doesn't do things according to the way we always think they should be done or how, whatever, however we've defined God should work. And so they tucked the ark away. They said, hey, you, you guard it, Eleazar. You watch over it. 
and we're going to give you the job. And, and so it was given to him and, and the people just went on with their business as usual and it would appear that they detached themselves from God. What causes someone to cry after the Lord after a 20-year gap? Let me ask you a question. Did you walk away from the Lord? Was it a decade or two? Some people have done that. Some people threw up their hands for whatever reason. Some, some of us have been hurt. Some of us have gone through inexplicable times. We can't make sense of them. And we just decided that we're going to put our faith on the shelf. We're just going to take a time out. We're going to go back to normal life, whatever normal life looks like. We'll disconnect from God. We'll disconnect from church. And we'll put the, we'll put the ark in the corner, if you will, and that's what we're going to do. And, and the people did that. And it went on for 20 years. I can't imagine living a day without the Lord in my life. Can you imagine 20 years? But it seems like when people make decisions like that, it becomes easier and easier to stay away from God. The hardest step is always the step back, isn't it? It seems so simple. <laughs> it's, you know, Somebody could tell you, it's just one step, man. Yeah, but it's a hard step. <laughs> Sometimes just to take that one step through the door to open yourself up back to the Lord and His ways. We know they're right. We know they're good. But sometimes we struggle. And so 20 years. Samuel, have you noticed in the last few chapters, the book which bears his name, he's been missing in action. I mean, we heard about him and then we heard that his, he was acknowledged as a prophet and his words were, you know, uh, bearing weight in the nation. But all of a sudden, where is he? <laughs> 20 years apparently has gone by and we've heard really nothing about Samuel. What's he been doing all this time? I think he's been praying for the nation. Much like when John the Baptist finally made his appearance and all of a sudden Samuel reemerges. You could call him the right man for the right time. It says, Then Samuel, verse 3, chapter 7, spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove, that speaks of rid yourselves or put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you or save you from the hand of the Philistines. Now we get a, an insight from verse 3 about what motivated the children of Israel to start crying after the Lord. The reason they started crying after the Lord is apparently they were on the verge of war. Because we, we understand that the Philistines are mentioned at the end of verse 3 and they've been this arch enemy and they've been mentioned several times in the book and we know what happened the last time the Philistines uh, warred with Israel, it was really bad. Many people died on the battlefield. The Israelites were asking the question, what's happened? Why wasn't God with us? Even when the ark showed up, that didn't help them because they saw it just as some magical relic instead of honoring the God who the ark represented. And now on the verge of war, they begin to cry out to the Lord. Have you noticed that as people, we are like that? Aren't we? We get in trouble, we feel pressure, 
Maybe there's an overwhelming situation and all of a sudden we decide that we're going to cry out to God. And you know what's awesome about God? He will respond to those cries. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes he'll allow us to get into a crisis (laughs) so that we might cry out to him. And that's really, when you think about the last 20 years for the Israelites, that's really what's happened. They've gotten a defeat and they, they have decided maybe to go the secular route, but, but they're not really secular. Actually, what we find out is that they've gone to other gods. And indeed, this may have been the problem all along because Samuel has just challenged them. He said, if you want deliverance from the Philistines, then you need to get rid of these gods. And the right man, who's been prepared from the time, but even before he was born, his mom said, if you'll give me a son. His mom's name is what? Hannah, which means grace. If you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And she did. And this, this young man was being prepared for leadership. I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah for a second. The book of Nehemiah. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Go to chapter eight. Nehemiah chapter eight. It says verse one, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given or commanded Israel. Then Ezra the priest, Nehemiah 8.2, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. This is the, the, uh, a very special month for Israel. And he read from it before the square, or in the open square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. That's about six hours. This is a preacher's dream, a six-hour sermon. And nobody's complaining. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, all the people, here's another pastor's dream, were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, something like a pulpit, if you will, which they had made for the purpose. I want you to understand something about a pulpit. This pulpit has nothing to do with this man that's standing here. What is elevated above us, the reason why preachers preach from a pulpit, is what's elevated above us is God's word. Not the man. It's his word. We are under his word. When anybody preaches from this pulpit, the reason that it might be elevated is that we are saying we are under its authority. We are under what it says. We're going to listen to what it says. That's why pulpits were raised in the first place. And so the book was opened and there was a pulpit there and there were others there. There were Levites there and their names are much too hard to try to pronounce and so I'm not going to even go there. But I'm going to take you to verse 6, if you'd skip down there, verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands um, I just want to say something else about this while, while we've got it. It appears that some people think that the lifting of hands is some weird, charismatic expression of worship. If you read the Bible, 
Actually, the lifting up of hands is all over the Bible. It is not some weird, extreme expression of worship. You don't have to lift your hands when you're worshiping. But it seems like when you uh, grow and, and you begin to kind of get uh, your arms around worship a little bit more, it becomes more comfortable. Your hands can kind of go up slowly over the years. You can be kind of like here. I don't want anybody to see me, but I sure want my, my hands almost feel like automatically something's pushing them up. I don't, I don't, I should. What will they think if they go up beyond midpoint? I'm going to stay right here. Okay. And then Shane sings a song like, I can't lift my hands high enough. And you're like, it's okay. It's okay to lift up your hands because it's a way of expressing love to God. It's a way of reaching out to Him because He's going to reach to you. It's a way of just saying, I honor you, Lord. It's almost like kneeling in prayer. You don't have to do it, but the people were lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped. Look at both. Uh, they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they read from the book of the law, look at verse 8, the law of God translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. They are making clear what the word of God said. I want you to understand something about Ezra. Ezra was not just a man that showed up on the scene to do this particular task. He was prepared by God. Uh, I want you to go back one book. Go to Ezra, just one book back. Go to chapter 7. Ezra 7, look at verse 8. Ezra 7, verse 8. And he came, he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. Ezra 7, look at verse 9. For on, the first of the, for on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. I point this out. Because if revival is going to happen, if a man or a woman is going to step up to leadership, you've got to be prepared Ezra prepared himself. He set his heart to study. He wanted to know God's word and he wanted to know it well. And when he got an opportunity to have a platform, he knew what he was talking about because he had already committed his life to study. Now look, nobody's ever going to arrive when it comes to studying the word of God. I've been studying the word of God for 20 plus years if you turn back to 1 Samuel. And I learned new stuff Every time I open the Bible and every time I restudy a book, I learn new stuff. That's not the point. But the point is this. If you want to be effective for God, you need to know his word. Amen? You need to be prepared to uh, preach what he says. And the only way you can do that is by knowing his word. First Samuel 7. What's the problem in Israel? 
And to what is uh, Samuel calling the people? He's calling them to repentance. And here we get an idea of the problem. Samuel said, if you will return. Here's the problem. You've turned away from the Lord. These 20 years have been filled with idolatry. You haven't worshipped the Lord. the, The nation is full of idols. Your heart is the problem. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. In 1 Samuel 7, we can see that oftentimes recovering from a period of sin and a period of not following the Lord takes time. And the ark sat and it was being protected and Samuel uh, was kind of in the background for a while. But then it says in 1 Samuel 7, 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, we have what I would call a formula for revival. Four simple things in the verse that I'd like to bring to your attention. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him alone, He will deliver or save you from the hand of the Philistines. Four simple formulas. One formula, four aspects of that formula for healing, for salvation, for deliverance. This applied to the nation. It could apply to an individual. It could apply to a marriage. It could apply to your life right now. Maybe you find yourself right now in a mess and You've, you've been reaping some consequences of a bad decision or decisions that you've made. And you're asking, is there a formula for healing here? Is there something I need to do in order to find myself in a position where I can experience the healing of the Lord? Yeah, I, I really think that it's here. And I, and I think that this, this spills over to the New Testament as well as we hear in this message. from you, know, you think about 2 Corinthians 7 where it talks about you know, godly sorrow, true repentance. Here it is. Four things, four simple things, but very profound. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible, and we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.